You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, I'm Jim Mitzner, and this is The Pulse of the Planet. Songbirds are constant reminders of the wonders and beauty of nature and the soundscapes which enrich our lives. To my ears, birdsong can be quite complex, and I've often wondered whether birds hear differently than we do, which would enable them to experience and understand their calls in a way that we can't. Well, today we'll take a deep dive into the world of birdsong with Megan Gall. Megan is an associate professor of biology at Vassar College. She's particularly interested in sensory ecology and the roles that senses play in animal communication. Megan, could you start us off by maybe giving a sense of what got you interested in in birds and studying birds? Is there one thing or just a bunch of things coming together? I've always loved being outside, being part of nature. Um, I'm also a musician. I still play with a, a band locally, and so I love sound as well. And I thought in college that I would need to make a choice between which one of those things I wanted to do, music and science. And it seemed easier to do music as a hobby, to do science as a career. But I thought I would be running around the savannah chasing after kangaroos. And during my master's degree, I was actually working on a a totally different project. And my advisor said to me, hey, if you change to this other project, you can come with me to the UK to pick up this piece of equipment. And, you know, I was 21 or 22, and I was like, great, let's go. I'm ready to, you know, I'll take on something different. And that got me into visual ecology of animals. So the visual ecology that we were specifically looking at is something called the visual field. So if you were to hold your hands up um, in front of your face and move them slowly behind your head, at some point you wouldn't be able to see your hands at all. The part you could see, that would be the visual field, and then we called the area you can't see your blind area. Different animals have different visual coverage. So some geese, for instance, can see all the way around their heads. And that's because they're out in big open bodies of water and need to look for predators. We have moved our eyes to the front of our heads to give us binocular vision. And so we have a much narrower field of view, and that gives us a bigger blind area. But that binocular overlap is really important for moving through space, for manipulating objects, things like that. I didn't even really realize there was this whole world of sensory ecology. And after I did my master's, I I really wanted to stay in the field, but I started thinking about how I could bring my love of of sound uh, into it. And so I ended up doing a PhD looking at audition, uh, the the hearing of birds. You know, that brings a lot to mind. What you're speaking, a whole bunch of questions came up. One is, well, gosh, when birds... Uh, have the option, either if they can't turn their head all the way around, you'd think that the birds who can't do that might be better listeners to hear all the things that they're not seeing, right? Is there any truth to that? We don't 
No, entirely. There's sort of two main hypotheses. Um, what you said, which is that you might have what's called a trade-off. So if you're limited in one sensory modality, so for instance, vision, that you might compensate for that with another modality, for instance, hearing in birds. There is also a hypothesis that some animals may be specialists in multiple sensory modalities. So they may invest a lot of energy in maintaining really good vision and really good hearing if it's important for the things that they have to do in their lives. So there's lots of different ways that animals have evolved, different habitats, different um, behaviors they do, different ways they forage, different predation risk. And there are lots of either trade-offs or lots of energetic input. And we really haven't explored it in a lot of detail comparatively yet to, to know the answer. Yeah, there's so many things in science are like that. That's why science is so great. It's like this never-ending trail, you know? Yeah, exactly. You, for every question you answer, 10 more questions appear. So here's a question, a little bit off the trail, but uh, what, what, you're still in a band. What's your instrument? What's your axe, as we used to say in the 60s? <laughs> uh, I, I play drums in a, in a band locally called the Roundabout Ramblers, which is all professors and college administrators. What kind of music? We play all kinds of stuff, but everything ends up sounding like Americana. So we have a fiddle and occasionally a mandolin and some guitars and a bass and, and me. Yeah. Americana. So are we talking old folk there? Is that is that? Yeah, a lot of old folk. We also yeah. play a lot of more modern things. I think we even cover a Blondie song. But yeah. again, it ends up sounding kind of like, a, like old folk when we play it. Cool. Okay. Tangent. Back to the trail. <laughs> In this particular podcast, we focus a lot on listening, although everything that you're saying about the visual world is wonderful too. But do birds hear like you and I do? Do they hear like us? In general... Birds and mammals have sort of broadly similar auditory systems, um, but there are some key differences. So birds and mammals both have um, what we call a, a cochlea. People have gone back and forth on whether to call it a cochlea in birds. In mammals, the cochlea is the spiral that makes up our inner ear. Yeah. It's called a cochlea because it's shaped like a, a snail. In birds, they don't have that spiral shape. It's just a sort of a long tube. And we, we all have hair cells. Hair cells are the cells inside of the ear that respond to sound. And the way they do this is they have these little, um, I'm going to call them fibers. It's not quite what they are, but little fibers on top of the cell. And when sound comes along, sound is pressure, it pushes on those fibers. And when it pushes on those fibers, we have ion channels. So these are things that let things like salt uh, move through the cell membrane. When you push on the hairs, that will open the ion channels and it will change the inside composition of the cell. And that's what allows us to turn mechanical sound into electrical energy. We call hair cells a transducer. I just want to make sure I'm following you. So sound, sound pressure, it's the pressure of the sound waves that is uh, influencing these hair cells. And that translates into something, let's pick it up there, uh, this transducer that you're talking about, I know a phonograph needle is like a transducer that does the same kind of thing. It's transforming these changes in the pressure waves to what? To electricity that uh -huh. our neurons use to send messages to our brain. And you're absolutely right. It's just like a microphone, right? If you think about a microphone, it has a little diaphragm in it. And that diaphragm, when sound pressure comes, it'll either be pushed in or pulled out. 
And that the old school way was you'd move a little tiny magnet in an electrical field, which mm-hmm. changes the size of the electrical impulse. And then we can record that on our computer or on a recording device. If you were recording it you know, back on a record, you would actually physically map how big the amplitude was in a record groove. And so our ears are doing the same things. They're taking that sound and they're turning it into an electrical energy that's going to go through the wires of our bodies, which are our the axons of our neurons up into our brains. And birds do the same thing. So we all are using hair cells to transduce this information. Now, what differs about them is how many they have and the types that they have. So we have a very, very long inner ear and it's kind of arranged like a keyboard. We call this tonotopic. So each frequency has a specific place in the ear. And when a sound comes along, it'll vibrate that place and then those hair cells will respond to that frequency wow what a great image huh is it like a keyboard and that the low frequencies are on one end and the high frequencies on another absolutely and the high frequency ends are closest to the opening of our ear and that's why when you get older high frequency hearing starts to degrade because if a really loud sound comes even if it's not the right frequency it can cause damage to that part of the, the inner ear Wow, I never knew that. So that's why we lose the high frequencies first, because they're, what, in the front lines or something? That's right, yep. Ah, who knew? Well, you knew, obviously, but that's <laughs> that's amazing. So now, uh, okay, so the keyboard, are our keyboards, do they have the same range? So remind me, what's the range of human frequencies, the sounds that most of us, except us oldsters, can hear? Yeah, that's right. So we measure things in hertz. Hertz are the cycles per second. Uh And we humans hear somewhere in probably around 50 hertz, sort of depends on the individual person, up to about 20 kilohertz. Mm. So we would have, as you say, a a keyboard that has many, many octaves on it, lots of different notes. Mm. Birds have a much, much shorter range of hearing. So they typically, we think of them hearing from somewhere between about 100 to 500 hertz on the low end to about 10 to 12 kilohertz on the high end. So a much more truncated frequency range. Yeah, let's put that in a way that we can um, relate to some of those numbers. So the human voice is somewhere around a a thousand cycles per second, a thousand hertz, is, is that more or less right? The medium? Yeah, it depends on the person, how deep their voice is. Yeah. Uh, the lower your voice is, the smaller the number of cycles per second. So a really, really deep voice is going to be more in the hundreds than the thousands, and a high voice might be a little bit higher than that. But that's around about what we hear. Our range is pretty extraordinary, is it? 50 to 20,000, is, is that pretty remarkable in the animal kingdom? I would say we're kind of somewhere in the middle of ranges. Um, we're we're probably more than a standard mammal, but a lot of very small animals here up much higher than that. Mm-hmm. The real champions of frequency range are typically some of the bats that echolocate and mm-hmm. marine mammals. They have really extraordinary frequency ranges of their hearing. So let's get back to the birds. So they don't have the range That's right. that we have. That's kind of surprising because you would think that they'd be hearing all this high stuff. So, so why the narrow range, do you think? The way I like to think of it is instead of having this huge long keyboard, what they've done is they've put multiple keys of the same note in each spot. And what that allows them to do is, well, if you accidentally don't press one key, you might press the keys next to it. 
and so their sensitivity uh, to to changes in sound over time is much greater than most mammals. Wow, such an interesting thought. What a great image. That gives birds, as listeners, a certain advantage that we don't have. What What is that advantage, would you say? So we as humans, we are really focused on frequency, um, and birds are focused on that as well, but they are also much more focused on the rapid changes that happen mm. to sounds over time. There's this fundamental trade-off in the ear. We have what are called auditory filters. They determine what frequencies each individual cell is going to respond to. There's always a center frequency. That's the one that is the best. And then they are also going to respond to frequencies a little bit above and below that. But they could either only respond to very close frequencies to the center or to many, many frequencies. The sort of inverse of this, if you're producing sound, is if you think about a drum, if you hit a drum, it produces all the frequencies at one time, but it stops almost instantaneously. What that allows you to do is play very complicated rhythms, very rapid sort of changes in the, the notes that you're playing across time. On the other end is like something like a tuning fork, where if you hit a tuning fork, it rings for a very long time. It only really produces one frequency. And if you hit it again, it's very hard to hear that second note. So if you wanted to play a rhythm, a tuning fork would not be very good. If you wanted to play a single frequency, a drum would not be very good. And so the ears are doing the same thing. They're, there's this continuum of how they're processing. Do I care mostly about frequency or mostly about timing? And every animal is somewhere on that continuum. And birds are focusing more on that timing information. So when there are those really rapid changes in frequency, really rapid changes in temporal patterns, so if you think about animals that make uh, trills, like a chipping sparrow, they're going to be able to pick up those changes to a much more resolved degree than a human would. Yeah, so thank you. Um, you've taken us to a place that I was hoping you'd go because I want to play a sound for you now. These are recordings that were made by a man named Crawford Greenwald who gave them to the Library of Ornithology at Cornell. But I, I got them, I think, if I recall, this is going back a few years here, from him. He was really interested in birds and he made these recordings of wood thrushes and related species. So there's veeries as well as wood thrushes and they're heard at normal speed and then at slow speed. I listen to that in life the first way. I don't hear it slow down unless somebody like Crawford Greenwald comes along and, and makes this kind of a recording. 
how do birds hear that? Do they hear it more like the second uh, way, slow down? And does this relate to what you were just talking about? Yeah, it's hard to know sort of cognitively what it is that they, how they process that. My guess is that they don't hear it slowed down necessarily, but that they're picking up different components of information from those signals than we are. Presumably, they're able to gain a lot more information about the changes that we have to slow down the sound to pick up, right? So when you hear it fast, it sounds kind of like a blur of, of elements, right? Mm. Some of them sort of merge together and sound like one sound. And when you slow them down, you can see that they're actually multiple elements in a row. The bird's ear is likely already picking up those individual elements at full speed. Um, a way to think about this is if you were shown a series of still images and you start speeding up how fast those images are being presented to you, eventually they'll look continuous, right? That's the idea behind old flip books and how film works. It's actually a series of still images, but they're moving so fast that our individual receptors in our eyes are turned on and they don't have enough time to turn off and turn back on to see the new image. And in the ear, the same kind of thing is happening. So birds might be hearing those things as individual elements where we're hearing them kind of blurred together in, in a continuous fashion because of their um, better temporal processing abilities. Wow. Does that have anything to do with the fact they have more, as using the image you gave us before, more keys of a particular frequency or is that something else entirely? Yeah, it's the same kind of idea, right? They're allowing themselves to average over individual cells. And so you can have a better ability to pick up small changes when you have numerous cells that are responding to the same frequency. It also has to do with these, these filters and sort of the broadness with which they're tuned in the ear. So it's not that they're stopping time or slowing time down. So time is the same phenomenon for them or for us, maybe, but they're being still able to parse this in what seems to me like a, a second or two. They're able to parse all this information that I'm not able to. Is, is that more or less it? That would be our best guess at the time. Um, you know, at, at, at this moment, probably they're able to parse things that we're not able to, but it's, it's totally possible that they're experiencing time differently as well. So that means time slows down for them? Oh, and I'm missing something. Right. So when you're young, you know, time appears to you to be forever. If you have a small child, they're bored in 10 minutes and ready to go do something else. Whereas that 10 minutes for you might go by in the blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. So longer lived organisms, we think, sort of experience time in a way that is slowed down relative to smaller animals. Well, I, I just think back to grade school, time moved glacially. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So potentially the same kind of thing happening for birds, right? That you're even so your life is sped up because you're not living for very long. Sort of an average, say, pastor and bird around us might be three or four years. And so your experience of time is that every moment seems longer because your lifespan is so short. 
that's sort of speculative. Yeah, <laughs> but very intriguing, and, and the whole idea of scale. You know, I mean, in in traditions. They say that, you know, um, our lifetime is by the blink of an eye for Vishnu or something along those lines. Joseph Campbell said it a lot better than I did, but it was something of that order, you know. On a cosmic scale, we are but an eye blink. We'll continue our discussion with Megan Gall in future programs. I'm Jim Metzner, and this is The Pulse of the Planet.